Let's take our Bibles together, please. Uh, our primary reading will be in Luke 22, but we will also firstly read in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. See, what we've been doing is to... We've been looking at the last six months in the life of our Lord Jesus and his ministry, and today we're going to just look at the last day, the last night, particularly... In the life of the Lord Jesus, now we can't possibly look at all the detail, we're not going to, because that last day, that last night, it was a tremendously long day. It did begin early in the morning, it went right through to the midnight hour, the Gethsemane's garden. I mean, that's really why they, one of the reasons why they fell asleep in Gethsemane. It was a tremendously pressured day. And indeed, the Lord Jesus was in the Caiaphas's house somewhere around three o'clock in the morning as they sought to trump up a charge against him. And in their desperation, they went right through the night to try and find a cause to put him to death. So what we're dealing with is the details of the last night. Now, in particular, we're looking at the activities of God on that day and that night. And we'll look at the activities of Satan. Because what I'm doing through this is trying to show you that in the activities of God, there's final victory. The activities of Satan, there's final defeat. And it was at that place in the cross, in his death and in his resurrection, that the final blow was struck against Satan and he destroyed him. It says that he destroyed him. He annulled death. You'll see the great battle that's fought and you'll see the evil of all evils. You'll see the sinfulness of sin. You'll see the power of Satan. Then in it all you see the power of God. It's tremendous, really. Probably over the next two weeks we'll be doing this. So let's go to Acts chapter 2 so as you get the picture firstly in Acts chapter 2. Because the wording I want to give you that is written there very beautifully in one verse. In Acts chapter 2... <clears throat> Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he actually preaches what could be really is the first gospel and the gospel of God's grace. He first preaches the first gospel and this is what he has to say to them. He says in verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's who we've been reading about in the gospels. A man... Approved of God among you or attested of God among you. God bore witness to who this man was by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Now notice verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now that's the activities of God in the death of Christ. Then ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's the activities of evil. Firstly the activity of God, then the activity of evil, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And that's the final victory of God. So go back to verse 23. You've got the activity of God. Now notice, please, it comes first. Otherwise, what is second would never and could never have happened. 
What happened in the second section was allowed by God. God was always in control. Satan had never taken over just to have his own way and to gain a victory. God was using even Satan's activity to bring about the great victory over sin and death and hell. So here it is again, verse 23. Him being delivered by the predetermined counsels of God and God knowing full well all that would happen. You get that? The foreknowledge of God. You have taken. God had not delivered him or allowed it. It would never have happened. But you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You have demonstrated the exceeding sinfulness of sin by what you've done. You've demonstrated your guilt by what you've done. You've demonstrated the wickedness of evil by what you have done. You've demonstrated the fact that you needed a saviour. You needed Christ to die for you. And you've demonstrated the fact that if you do not receive him and accept him, then as the one who is risen from the dead because he couldn't be holden by it, then all that's left for you is judgment. Now that's really what he's saying there. And when I want to look at the events <coughs> of happenings in that day, when he was to be taken by wicked hands, wicked hands, and crucified and slain. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke bring those truths out. They emphasize that aspect of the death of the Lord Jesus, the wickedness of the hands that took him, the wickedness of the plot that was devised against him, the wickedness of the activities of Satan himself and the wickedness of a traitor, a treacherous Judas. So it goes on. That's what Matthew, Mark and Luke emphasize in their story of the sufferings of Christ at the cross. If you want to see the glory of it, because this, you know, this is incredible contrast. You, you see darkness, you see shame, you see dis, just destruction and evil here and then here you see the activities of God and what he was doing. And then you, you see the polar opposite. You see glory. You really see glory. You see God shining, as it were, or may I speak reverently, at his very best. And if you really look at the cross and understand it with the eyes of a believer, through the words of Scripture, you'll get to see who the Lord Jesus really, really is. You would remember as he commenced the last six months of his ministry and he was setting his face to go to Jerusalem where he must suffer and bleed and die. He was preparing his disciples for what lay ahead, the cross, for what lay ahead, rejection and suffering. And the one thing he wanted them first of all to understand, he asked them the question, who do you say that I am? You must understand who Jesus really is. Remember that? Then he said the second thing you've got to grasp is that the Son of Man, he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be slain. And he must die. You must understand that. And the third thing was, you must understand the price of coming to follow me. Right. So now what are we doing? We're looking at the meaning of what it means that he must suffer. He must be taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. So in verse 22, chapter 22... I will read just verses 1 to 14. <clears throat> you've got the two sides of it presented there, and you've got, we'll start at that particular point. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. 
Notice, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, so they feared the people. I mean, that's just, just, just read that, and there they are actually plotting to kill. There they are preparing a feast, they're going to kill a lamb, and the lamb of God's providing, they themselves are going to reject and kill him, not in sacrifice, but in hate. They're going to take him by wicked hands, and they're going to crucify and slay him. He must be slain. They're going to do it. Next move in the drama, then entered Satan into Judas. Surname of Iscariot being one of the twelve. And he, Judas, this is the next move, went his way. And he communed, you know, an unholy communion. He discussed things with the chief priests, the captains, how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad. We've rejoiced this morning. These people were actually rejoicing over what they were doing. And they covenanted to give him money. And he promised, put his signature on the page, signed off the deal. And he sought opportunity to betray him unto, the, unto them in the absence of the multitude. Right, stop there. And what's going on at the same time, virtually? What's going on? Verse 7. <clears throat> what's the Lord doing? That's what the devil's doing. We just read that. What's the Lord doing? Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. They said to him, Where wilt thou that we shall prepare? Very good question. Very good question. And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. You won't miss him. It's all very, very carefully arranged. There's going to be no problems here, no mistakes made, because you don't meet men carrying pitchers of water in those days in that part of the world. The women did all that. But you'll find a man, and he's actually bearing a pitcher of water. You follow him into the house where he enters in. <coughs> and you'll say... To the master of the house, the teacher says to thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them. And they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, keep the picture in your mind of all this that's been going on. Just forget about verses 1 to 6 a minute and think about the Lord Jesus discussing with his disciples think about those disciples just following his instructions and going out into the town and looking for this man and following him and going into the house and so on get the picture and the climax of it here when the hour was come he sat down the twelve apostles with him and said with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer? Right. <clears throat> Keep the reading in your mind. We're looking at the side of things presented by Luke. He's to be taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. In verses 1 to 6, the plan is laid and the plot is slowly unfolding. It says in verse 1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. 
And what they would have done is celebrated a meal in the home the night before. <clears throat> and then in the temple itself was where the actual ceremony would take place, where the lamb would be slain. And when you think about it, you know, this is terrible. This is religion at its worst. The ceremony would be kept without the substance of the ceremony being acknowledged. They would have their lamb. And on the one hand, in the temple, so religious. On the other hand, they would take the lamb of God outside the city wall where he would be crucified and slain. He would be put to shame. They would do everything they could to make it very, very clear that they actually were deliberately, once and for all, with intensity of hatred, rejecting the lamb that God had provided. This is the awful thing when all you've got is religion and you don't know Christ. When you've got ceremony and you haven't got substance. It's really, really terrible. Right? Verse 1. The, tra the tragedy of mere religion. And then in verse 2 it says, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him. This is blatant, isn't it? Now, if you were to read Matthew and Mark as well, you'd realise it wasn't just the chief priests and the scribes. It was the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers and the elders of the people. In other words, all of them in their religion, all of them were involved. It wasn't just part of them, you see. When you get that clear, these are Satan's minions, you know, and they're actually in the place of religion. And they're seeking, what does it say, how they might kill him? Because there is a problem. They do fear the people. Because, you see, the people are there and they still, as it were, are very much in favour of listening to the Lord Jesus. They're coming into the temple very early in the morning and they, they want to listen to what he has to say. So they can't get things so that there's an uproar in the feast. If they do, then the Romans are going to come and say, what's going on with your ceremony? And there's going to be a lot of trouble. Also, it says here that they sought how they might kill him. And you'll find in Matthew, it says that they sought by trickery, you know. They sought how they might take him, but they, they did it by trickery. Mark says craft. So you see, Satan has never changed anything that he's ever done. His methodology of working is exactly the same. There's always deception in what he does. Understand, when the devil's at work, there's always deceit. Trickery and craft, right? Verse 3. Now you've got Satan making his move. He moves into the inner circle of the very disciples themselves. The inner circle. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being a number of the twelve. And this disciple is transformed into a tool of Satan, motivated by, guided by, completely ruled by Satan himself, and the disciple becomes a traitor. The devil will stop at nothing to make us get his own way. Please understand that. He'll infiltrate the inner circles of religion, if you like, and he will infiltrate the inner circle of any, any of, uh, Christian work. He will get into the inner circle of any so-called Christian church. He will do anything in order that he might destroy the Christ of God and today he will do anything that he might destroy the people of God and the work of God. And understand this is real. Satan entered into Judas. Powerful, dreadful. Right. What happens? It says in verse 4, Satan is, verse 3, Satan has made his move. Now, you, you put this all together. You've got the, the group of the scribes, the Pharisees, 
the rulers, etc., the elders, that's the one group there. You've got Satan there, you've got a, a disciple here, and they, they join together and they form this, this dreadful trinity of evil. An unutterably evil fellowship. The powers of darkness are working together in co- cohesion so that they can bring about their nephros and foul plans. The rulers of the darkness of this world are on the move. They still are, fellow Christian. They still are. Verse 5 says what? And they were glad. Oh, what an unholy joy. They covenanted. They had a bargain. You know, it's almost you could just see them sitting there. Well, how much will you do it for? How much will you do it for? Or such and such. Oh, that's too much. No, what about this? What? You know, they're, they're bargaining over the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, over the death of a perfect, sinless man who'd only ever done good and had only ever blessed them. If not one of them could find one fault in him, which of you will ever convince, he says, convinces me of sin. And there was dead silence. They couldn't do it. But this man they wanted out. This man they wanted dead. And it says they were, they struck this unholy bargain. And it says they were glad in verse 5 and they covenanted to give him money. So you get it all the picture here. First of all, you've got a pact, right? There's a pact form, isn't it? And there's a plan made. And then there's a promise. That's terrible. Judas actually sealed the thing with his promise. And then the rulers, they come and they, they, they pay the price of the whole deal. And what is the price? 30 pieces of silver. I mean, if you love the Lord, that thought is inconceivable. That for 30 pieces of silver. I repeat it, can I? 30 pieces of silver. That was the value that they put on him. You know... In years gone by, we used to take the children when they were small to a nursing home on a regular basis and they used to sing things for them and say poems. And I always remember one poem and I've been reminded of it because I heard Adelaide learning it the other day. And I, I'm just going to read it to let the, the, the significance, the, the terribleness, Richard, can I use that word, of the fact you would sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, you said this morning that silver was a picture of redemption in the scripture. Uh, what do we say now? <laughs> I don't know what to say now. 30 pieces of... What an abuse of the meaning of silver. 30 pieces of silver for the Lord of life they gave. 30 pieces of silver. It was only the price of a slave. Yet it was the priest's value of the Holy One of God. And they weighed it out in the temple. The price of the Saviour's blood. Thirty pieces of silver laid in Iscariot's hand. Thirty pieces of silver and he got the aid of an armoured band. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, they took the Holy One of God at midnight from the garden where he sweat has been as blood. Thirty pieces of silver burned in that traitor's brain. Thirty pieces of silver, oh, it was a hellish gain. Oh, he cries, I've sinned and betrayed the guiltless. And he cries with a fevered breath and he casts it down in the temple and he rushes to a madman's death. Thirty pieces of silver lay in the house of God. Thirty pieces of silver, but oh, it was the price of blood. And so for a place to bury the stranger, they gave the price of their own Messiah who was to lay in a borrowed grave. 
It may not be for silver. It may not be for gold. Yet by tens of thousands is this precious saviour sold. Sold for a godless friendship. Sold for a selfish aim. Sold for a fleeting trifle. Sold for an empty name. Sold in the mart of science. Sold in the seat of power. Sold at the shrine of fortune. Sold in pleasure's bower. Sold where the awful bargain. None but God's eye can see. Ponder my soul the question. Will he ever be sold by thee? Sold! Oh God, what a moment. Stifle this conscience voice. Sold! And a weeping angel records the awful choice. Sold! But the price of the Saviour to a living coal shall turn with pangs of remorse forever. Deep in the soul to burn. Very touching that. Hear a child say that is quite moving. You see, he lays these plans. Satan lays these plans. This unholy alliance. He is quite sure that he is going to win the day. And you know, I used to read this and see how careful Satan was and how the extent to which he went. And I used to think, I wonder why he's doing this. Because in actual fact, if he, if he is responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus, he's just signed his own demise. Because that death destroyed Satan's power. And you think, well, pardon me, you know, devil, you're a fool, <laughs> if I could put it that way. But you see, this is the point, and it only came to me a couple of days ago, Satan is not omniscient. He does not know everything. He made actually a bad mistake in the temptations. You remember in the temptations, he completed every temptation and then he left the Lord Jesus. In other words, he used up all his weapons. He revealed every trick he had in his trade and in his basket and in his bag and in his wicked dark heart. He revealed the lot. It's never a good idea to go out in the first round of battle and reveal every bullet you've got. It's not a good thing to do. So that wasn't good. Now he knew the scriptures sideways quite clearly. He quoted them so much to the Lord Jesus and he knew how to twist them a little bit too. You think, you think he would have read the prophets, wouldn't you? Hey? He'd have read the Psalms and he'd have learned the story that this Lord Jesus Christ who had been coming to the world, who he knew was the seed of the woman, he knew it all right. That's why he wanted him destroyed in the first place and to stop the birth in the second place and kill him when he was a babe in the third place. Yes, he knew who he was. You would think he would have read it in the scriptures, but you see, no, no, no. Darkness cannot see light. No, no. Blinds the mind. It blinds the mind. Satan, he might be mighty, but he's not almighty. He might be powerful, but he's not omnipotent. And he might know a lot, but he's certainly not omniscient. And he really thinks that by taking the Lord Jesus and getting that, that trinity of evil together and getting those men passionately roused and getting into the heart of a treacherous disciple, he thinks he will get the victory, whereas in actual fact it will bring about his complete defeat and actually it will bring about his destruction that verse keeps ringing in my ears that through death he will destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil you know when you've destroyed something there's nothing left for it to come back again it's over it's finished and it's done and then we'll see that finally in the end of all of our studies and in timothy it's remarkable what the apostle says in second timothy he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light that's what satan aided god to do if i could put it that way god allowed him to do it and little did the devil know but he was fulfilling the prophecies of god he was bringing to pass the purposes of god and the outcome would be one he would be destroyed 
And two, death would be, I like the word, abolished. It would be made of none effect. Do you realise, fellow Christian, that death has been given no authority anymore or nor does it have any effect on the child of God? It doesn't. You see, it's rendered powerless. What will death do to us as believers? It will transport us into a better place. It will enable us to have the fullness of eternal life. We've got it now, but the fullness of it there. It's but a doorway through which we pass into another world of richer blessing and fuller life. And in that sense, as a penalty for the believer and as a fear for the believer, it's been annulled, it's been rendered powerless as if it has absolutely no effect. Now look, some of us are getting older, wakey-wakey, you know, you're ready to die and go out rejoicing, eh? Will you die in faith, will you? It's the way to die, you die in faith, you're going to a better land, you're going to a better place, you're going to live a better life, <laughs> and you're going to get a better view of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. We get this all back to front, you know, as we get older, we get occupied with our ailments, favourite conversations of geriatrics, you know, Gertrude's, Gertrude's uh, sore toe, you know, my aching tooth and my indigestion. And you live from every burp to every belch to... <laughs> pardon me. You get the idea, don't you? You spend uh, all our time on Sunday singing about heaven and going home and then we run off to the doctors on Monday, as we say. Why do we do that? Well, we might just don't want to get there too early. So keep the thing. This is very beautiful. If you get, get the whole thing in its right place. And so <clears throat> he thinks... Through the death of the Lord Jesus, he's gained the victory, he's got the power, he will rule the world. Little does he know it's going to be his own defeat. For this holy saviour who had no sin, you think the devil would have woken up to that of the temptations, and when he came to take him, the Lord says he finds nothing in me. This holy Christ, he will go into death. And death cannot hold him because there's no sin in him. Therefore, he can be like, as it were, a strong man going into the worst of dungeons and just letting them lock the door as he's cast into the depths of darkness. And yet, when they've gone away, he will merely turn around to those gates that are chained and locked by the power of sin and Satan, and he will tear those, those gates open wide. Yes, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my saviour. That's what he did. He doesn't understand that. The hymn writer put it so beautifully. He said, He hell, in hell, laid low. Made sin, he sin or through. He bowed to the grave and he destroyed it so. And death, by dying, slew. You see that? Now, Satan has obviously not got the hang of all of this. As I said, he's not on this event. Now, what we've looked at there in those first six verses, what have we looked at? We've looked at the fact that, you know, these men of religion, these rulers, these in authority, they have made their preparation. My word, we're seeing that today. Men in authority making their preparation for the brave new world of sin and godlessness that they will bring in by rejecting everything of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, these men have made their preparation. We've seen someone who's a renegade disciple, someone who was in the inner circle, 
who tasted the good things of the world, the powers of the world to come. They've tasted of it, right? And they're going to deliberately reject. And Judas, he makes his preparation. And then we've seen the devil himself, the ruler of the darkness of this world, the ultimate evil one. We've seen him and he's making his preparations. And the whole thing, you know, is an incredible picture of how evil evil is and of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Right, that's the first six verses there, all right? You've got, keep it a picture in your mind. You, could, you know, it's, it's, it's just got the essence of evil, darkness, malice, envy, hate, and everything that's black. Black. Now you go to verse 7. <clears throat> Something else is going on all this while, and there's a stark, grass, dark, stark contrast. It's, it's like the contrast between heaven and hell. <laughs> it's like the contrast between light and darkness. Meanwhile, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Oh, the Lord Jesus knows he must suffer, he must be slain, he must die, he must rise again. He sent Peter and John, and he says, go and prepare the Passover. So there you are, the time has arrived, and the order is given, and then there's a problem. They say, where wilt thou that we prepare the Passover. Now that's fair enough because um, number one, they're all away from home and as we say, normally it would be in a home, in their own home, in the meal, preparing it. They're in a pretty hostile environment by now. There's a fair bit of um, animosity stirred up. There's many who actually believe, it says, among the Jews, but uh, even among the priests, but they're not going to come out and say, it says in Matthew, at this stage because they might get thrown out of the synagogue. And he says, um, <clears throat> so it's very fair that they've got a, um, where will you prepare? And verse 10, and down to verse 13, gives it such a lovely, clear thing. Everything's under control. Everything's just arranged as it were. Behold, when you enter the city, there's a man there. He'll be the one to follow. You can't miss him. You go into the house, there's a house there. When you get into the house, you'll find there's a master in that house who's favourable. Not only is there a master in the house that is favourable, what you're going to discover is that there's a large upper room. Not only is there just a large upper room that you've got to go and clean up, the large upper room is already furnished, you see. And he said, just go there and you make ready. And they went and they found, as he had said unto them, <coughs> and they made ready <coughs> the Passover. Notice that, isn't that lovely? You know, no detail has been overlooked, nothing at all. Everything's just clear, cut, arranged, smooth as oil, if you like. You see, the Lord is in control still. Actually, it says in John, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And never was the plan and purposes of God in a safer place than when they were in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never were the events of that night, with all its evil, more assured of victory than then they were in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the, in the beauty of his own society, shall I say, at the hour, not before, just at that exact hour, he sits himself down at table and the twelve apostles are with him. Now, just get the picture of that there in the upper room, furnished, twelve men, the Lord Jesus, the exact time and quietly he takes his place among them. And we said look, a family gathering. Well, it was very difficult because... You see, these men were all away from home, weren't they? They couldn't exactly all pick each other's homes or share a home even. And not only that, but it says of the Lord Jesus that he's got nowhere to lay his head. He's made that very clear. 
And yet, in this upper room is a family gathering. Do you not see that? What you've got here is the gathering of the whole family of God. And he who is its head is presiding at the table. Had he not said very clearly before in his life, whosoever does the will of my father, he is my mother and sister and brother. And you've got the first gathering of the entire family of God in the darkness of a world that's plotting sin and hate. That's what you've got. And you see there's a was you see how it's all arranged and how it all just goes quietly according to plan, hardly noticed by the turmoil round about. There's absolutely no sense of agitation in this picture of verse seven down to verse fourteen, is there? There's no sense of haste, there's there's not a breath of fear, there's no there's no panic. It's like there's a holy calm settling here. For the plans of God are being enacted and the purposes of God are being fulfilled and he is in control despite despite the nephorous, the evil activities of a world about them. Nonetheless, God is marching on. Christ is in control. He realizes that on that very motto, when the Passover lamb will be slain, he must die. The lamb of God, bearing away the sin of the world, paying the price of redemption with precious, precious blood that will be slain, that will be spilled. Indeed, there is no doubt he will be taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. And, and slain. But, and on the surface of the whole pictures as you're looking at them, it would look as though Satan's going to get a victory. This is going to be a, a marvellous celebration for the powers of darkness. But, and good and God will be conquered. And evil and Satan will triumph. But no, it's not going to be like that. And that's the understanding we get as we follow the story through. You see... John gives us the other side of what was going on on that day. And it's very, it is very, very, very beautiful. And I want you to turn to John 12. We'll cover some of it. It's too rich to cover all of it. Go and look at John chapter 12. <coughs> See what he has to say about the same period of time. Verse 23 of John chapter 12. Jesus answered, saying, The hour is come. See, the time has arrived. That's what that means. It's not literally 60 minutes. It's the whole timing and God's clock has reached that point where things now move forward at the time of the Passover. And this is how he describes it. Look how he describes it. In which I shall be taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. That's not what he says. This is the Lord speaking, the one who is in control. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's amazing. We're talking about shame, crucifixion, Satan, right? And all the plots, and a Judas on the one hand. He says, no, look, this is the time when the Son of Man will be glorified. And without doing the detail yet, go into verse 28. More than that, he says, verse 27, for this cause came I to this hour, Father... Glorify thy name. So it's the hour in which he, the Lord Jesus, will 
be glorified, not just put to shame. This is the hour in which God not only will be defeated, but indeed the Father himself will be glorified. Verse 31. Now, right now in this hour, in these events, in this my suffering and death and resurrection, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. That's a powerful <coughs> and full declaration of what this hour would accomplish. It would accomplish, one, the glory of the Lord himself. People will see who he really is. The glory of God the Father himself. For it will be revealed in that cross who here God the Father really is. He would not spare even his own son. <clears throat> it will be the world, be the hour in which the world itself will be judged. The prince of the ruler of this world will be cast out and all men will be drawn unto him. Now isn't that a stark contrast to what we've been reading? I, I want to work on that and bring that through to you. And if that's not enough, you go to chapter 13 and verse 1 and 3, talking about exactly the same thing. Now before the feast of the Passover, here it is. When Jesus knew that his hour was come. Never think the devil overtook him by surprise or that Judas really, you know, came upon him unexpectedly. He knew that his hour was come that, look at the wording, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. That's lovely, isn't it? In other words, it was his exodus. You see, he talked about this on the Man of Transfiguration when he said Moses and Elias discussed with him his decease, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now the word decease, you think, well, that's death and that's the end. The word actually is not decease. It's meaning exodus. He's going out. He's going out. He would go out by way of death, through death, by way into glory and the ascension. Right? So he knew that. He should depart out of this world, the hour of his departure, unto his father, and so on. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he was come from God, all right? And that he went to God. What is that? That's the story from the cradle to the grave. He came from God and he went to God. And he has that in his mind and purpose entirely. He's going to be delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that's the first step the last and final step is and be raised up by God because the grave could not hold him and that's the story of the cross as it was seen from God's perspective where he is delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and crucified and slain versus by taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain now those four points Keep you to keep them in mind in relation to the meaning of the cross. I'll deal with the first one and we may stop then. What does he say in verse 23? The hour is come. Well, we may go further. We'll see how we go. <laughs> the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, see, there's, there's absolutely no thought here of defeat, is there? There's no thought here of shame. What we're talking about is absolutely speaking of glory. In other words... Glory is associated with what a person is and they come in their presence and they bring a, 
an, an exuberance of light and splendor, and you, you're showing who he really is. And when we speak about glorifying the Lord, it's revealing something of his splendor and who he really is, what he is actually doing. And it will be seen in this hour of his uplifting in crucifixion who the Lord Jesus really, really is. Right? That's exactly what was preached in Pentecost. Taken by wicked hands, yes. Delivered by the predetermined counsel of God, yes. But this same Jesus as God made both Lord and Christ. You'll see he's more than the peasant of Nazareth, the carpenter, the Nazarene, the one they can take and slay. He is none other than the Lord of life and glory and the Saviour of the world. And through this death and burial and resurrection, He is the only Redeemer, the answer to the world's need. He is the promised seed of the woman. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Saviour that God has provided. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what He's looking ahead through it all, beyond it all. And He's saying to them, look, would you listen to me? Now is the hour, now is the time when the Son of Man shall be glorified, displayed, it is, in full grandeur, full grandeur of who I am and what I've come to do. Far from adding to his shame, it will result only in that glory. What started all this? You know, why did they say that? Why did the Lord Jesus suddenly come out with that remark here? And the reason is this, that up in verse 20, it says there that certain Greeks came to the feast. Now, these Greeks are Gentiles, all right? Now, keep in mind that right to this point, what's happened is that God has been blessing his people. He's made a covenant with a nation, right? He's made a covenant with Israel. That's what he's done. And if you were outside the covenants, then you never were eligible for the blessings. And suddenly the Lord's... These Greeks come up. They, they, they say to the, to, uh, the disciples, Look, sirs, we, we would see Jesus... And Philip comes and tells Andrew, and Andrew tells Philip. Then they come to the Lord Jesus, and they repeat to him the words that these Greeks have said. And he says, and that touches his heart as he realizes that through his work, Gentiles, sinners who are in a far-off place outside the blessing, they are going to come in and know the fullness of the love of God. And he tells a story straight away about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying and abiding alone. He sees there's, 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 if the corn of wheat just stays on its own, there's no enrichment, fulfillment and blessing for others. And he sees it in and through his death, in and through him alone dying. There will spring out blessing for all nations all over the world that whosoever will may come and know the blessings of God's salvation. That's what's in his mind. He's seeing that through his death, the fullness of what will come in blessing for others. Indeed, through his death, he's saying, if a man should lose his own life and die, he says, he will, he will actually keep it for life eternal, even out of what that man is doing in hating his own life and following Christ will come the richness of a fuller life than the man himself ever knew. 
That's the idea there. And the one who comes to serve him, he said, well, the consequence now of serving me will be that where I am, there shall my servant be. And my servant will see my glory in that coming day and in the days that follow after the resurrection. And what's more, my father will honour him. Can you see that out of this death is springing the magnificence of blessing? Many, many more grains of wheat, as it were, will grow up. And the Jews will not just be the only people. The narrowness of the covenant will be swept away into the breadth of a new covenant. And the life of the believer that follows him will be sublimed into a life that is richer and fuller and even greater. And the sorrow of a servant that suffers for the name of Christ will be more than removed. He will be enriched and blessed with the Joy of beholding the Lord in all his glory. We have contemplated something of that this morning. I mean, when you think of the Lord Jesus, what do you think? Where does your mind go? It goes up there, doesn't it? Does it really go back to the cross and to shame? What I mean by that is the shame of that life and that just that lowly man. No, it it isn't like that. You think straight away he's sitting at the right hand of God. You say, hallelujah, what a saviour, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. This is the hour when he, the Lord Jesus Christ, through that work of suffering and shame, through death and resurrection and final ascension, he will be known for who he really is and every knee shall bow. And every tongue ultimately confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will continue with the Lord's will, the Lord's will with the meaning of those other ones next week. May the Lord bless us all afresh through the word this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do give thanks for these pictures in Scripture. We do give thanks for the word of God that's there for us to read. We pray that through reading it and through our meditation this morning, we might come to a fuller understanding of who the Lord Jesus is, of what the work of the cross really did, and our God and Father, the meaning of salvation and of our redemption. Lord, help us to grow in these things that our faith might be much stronger as a result of grasping more fully the truths of Holy Scripture. May the Holy Spirit guide us into truth and we might grow in our knowledge and understanding and in grace is our humble prayer this morning as we are so grateful that we have remembered the Lord, we have thought of the price of redemption, we have honoured the Redeemer, And we have read the word of God. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be our blessing in the week that lies ahead until our Lord shall come. Amen.